0: Our reading this morning comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we
1: prepare to approach God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know each of us individually, and you know How we have come into this building this very morning. Uh, You know those of us who are struggling and hurting, uh, those of us who are feeling and experiencing much joy in this life, and you know those of us who are doubting and skeptical and some of us even wondering how it is that we came to be in a church this morning. Um, Father, wherever we are… Uh, Whether it be in happiness or bitterness or sorrow or um, in pain, we pray that you would meet with us now by your Spirit as you minister to us through your Word. And that for each of us, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, that you would remind us that the truth is we're really all the same. We are all in far more need Than we really know. We're far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so, together, we need to hear the wonderful good news of the gospel. We need to hear how it can be true that we can be both far more broken than we could ever imagine, but also because of Jesus, far more loved and far more accepted, far more approved of and secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. Father, would you take us to this good news? And would you change us by it? For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Children are dismissed to children's church at this time. So children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed. Make your way to the back of the sanctuary and you'll be taken to your class. For the rest of us, uh, week by week this fall, we've been making our way through the letter of James. And we're in James chapter 4 in the passage that we read earlier, verses 1 through 12. And it's a fascinating passage and definitely one that should hit home for all of us because it's about relationships. And what's great is that James, in this passage, he's not only diagnosing our conflict and confrontation in relationships. But he's also clear um, about what must be done to heal our relationships and change our relationships. And he's also clear about how we are to do that, how we are to move towards that, towards the healing and the change. I, I know that this seems, this pretty old movie, not super old, but Um, It might help here for this illustration because um, most of us have probably seen it. I'm talking about the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And some of you remember the story um, of that movie, how Tom Hanks was this character who was working for, employed by FedEx, and his plane went down and he found himself marooned on a desert island all By himself, and therein lies the story. He has to learn how to survive. Uh, Physically, of course, he's got to think about what he's going to do for shelter and food and and water and those sorts of things. But he's also trying to survive the aloneness um, that he's experiencing on this island. So he's trying to survive emotionally. And psychologically as well. And some of you probably remember the other character in this movie that was made famous in this movie. Um, it was a volleyball um, named Wilson, right? Um, it washed up on shore. And what's fascinating in this movie and this story as you see it unfold on the screen is how Tom Hanks' character takes this volleyball and You know, he names it Wilson, or that's already its name printed on the volleyball, I guess. Um, But he has a real relationship with this volleyball, and he talks to this volleyball, and he takes this volleyball with him everywhere, and he shares stories with this volleyball, and he he laughs with this volleyball. Um, He gets angry at this volleyball. Um, It's interesting. And here's what I liked about the movie, and in particular, this relationship of Tom Hanks with this volleyball. Um, To see a guy have a relationship and befriend a volleyball is weird. Um, But no one watching this story thought it was weird um, because we instinctively know. We instinctively know that no one has to spell it out for us, right? We're made For relationships. In fact, we know that we're so made for relationships that we cannot survive without relationships. Um, God designed you and me in such a way that we can only flourish and we can only be who He made us to be inside of relationships, inside of interdependent relationships. Put very simply, we need one another… Right, We were made and built for community. But we all know this about relationships, and we all know this about community. It's hard, and it's messy, and at times, it is very, very painful for us. I mean, some of you are experiencing that pain this very morning, right? Because we're broken people. That's how we come into these relationships. And so listen, the relationships that we were made for... Um, the relationships of peace that we were meant to enjoy in life, which is what James mentioned in the last verse of chapter 3, he wrote this, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Instead of the peace we were meant to enjoy, our broken reality leads us into relationships of friction and fracture of conflict. And confrontation. And so, James, what he's doing here in this passage before us is he's diving deeply into the brokenness of our relationship to tell us three things. And these are the three things he wants to tell us. First, he gives us a diagnosis of our conflict. And then, second, he tells us what we must do to experience change. And then third and finally, he tells us how to do what must be done. So a diagnosis, what to do to experience change, and then finally how to do what must be done. So here we go. First, the diagnosis of our conflict. In chapter 4 of James, he's diagnosing our relationship conflict as symptomatic, okay? In other words, the conflict... And the fighting and the confrontation that we experience in our relationships, he's saying, is a symptom of something beneath the surface. It's actually driven, he's saying, by a deeper internal confrontation, a deeper battle, an internal battle of desires. One author wrote, it's tempting to look at the trouble in our relationships and locate the problem outside of ourselves. And it's true. The other person is inherently weak and sinful. But he writes, unfortunately, so are we, right? See, the Bible won't let any of us wriggle out from taking responsibility for the conflict that's in our lives and in our relationships. We want to point the finger at her or at him, and the Bible is pointing its finger right back at us. this, This is right, isn't it? When we're in conflict, the last place we want to look is inside of us. We want, we're convinced that the problem is outside of us. That person that interfered, that got in the way, that did this or that or said this or that, he's the cause, she's the cause of this conflict. And James is saying, let's slow down here. Let's slow down and diagnose the symptoms of your conflict. And when we do, we'll find that the source of this conflict is internal. It's inside of us. It's in our deep-seated, self-centered desires. What causes quarrels and fights among you, James asked. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, right? The Greek word for passions there is where we get our English word, hedonism, right? Our deep-seated, self-centered desire to live for our own pleasure. That's the source of the conflict. So let's go a little bit further. James wrote in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Slow down and think about this diagnosis, right? Here's what James is saying. When someone interferes with your desire for comfort or convenience or control or your agenda, it's game on, right? Listen, if someone keeps me from my desires or interferes with what I feel like I have to have to be happy, then the confrontation erupts. If someone takes away my perceived control in a situation, in a circumstance, in an experience, in a relationship, the conflict rises to the surface. If my convenience is denied... If my timetable is delayed, if your desires are shown preference over mine, that's all it takes. James is saying dig deeper beneath the symptoms to diagnose your conflict because the source isn't your spouse. The source isn't your boss or your kids or your friends or your circumstances or your neighbor or your business competitor. It's not outside of you, but deep inside of you. It's in your desires. Several years ago, my wife and I, we planted this little garden in our backyard, and we planted beans and corn and zucchini and tomatoes and lettuce and carrots, all the, you know, the top stuff for amateur gardeners, I guess. Um, and I loved that little garden that we had. Um, and I, the thing that I really loved about it was I loved coming home and checking the garden at the end of the day with my kids. Uh, they were pretty little at the time. And, but we'd walk out there and eventually things started to grow. And it was cool because they could see it, right? And, um, they could see a little green tomato or, or that's the beginning of a, a little bean or an ear of corn or or whatever it was. And, you know, we talk, eventually it's going to get bigger and we'll get to come out here and we'll pick it and we'll get to eat it. And it's exciting, right? Um, But the carrots were, in our garden, were different um, (laughs) because the carrots were beneath the surface. And we would look at those green little leaves coming up and I would tell my kids, those are carrots. And they would be like, I can see the bean, I can see the tomato, I can see the zucchini, but I can't see the carrot. I'm not sure I believe you. Um, and, uh, but I knew, we, we all know, right, um, that there were carrots underneath those green leaves, that in fact the green leaves on the surface was proof of the carrots beneath the surface, right? And the conflict in our lives, uh, even for those of us who hate conflict, and we try to avoid it. And a lot of times we do so passive-aggressively in our lives. For all of us, beneath the conflict, right, the conflict that shows up on the surface of our lives, it is proof of deep-seated, self-centered desires that are churning underneath, right, inside our hearts. And all of this is very interesting for us to talk about, but you need to think about this. It probably is not going to be enough to think about it right now. Um, you need to spend some time thinking about it later. But it's actually terrifying to think about how to apply this to our lives. For you to move practically from self-justification in your life, from anger in your life, from the hurt in your life, from the offense that you have taken in your life from others, to a real honest, open self examination is a gigantic, terrifying leap to make. Because when you do that, it is a leap into a terrifying, indefensible vulner- vulnerability. Because it's to admit in your life that it's not you, it's not that other person, right? It's not the environment, it's not my past baggage. It's not this circumstance in my life. It is my deep, dark heart. The, the self-centered, deep-seated desires of my heart that is a source of this conflict. Do you, do you remember, um, there's a story about G.K. Chesterton. At one point, um, he was an author. And um, at one point, the London Times sent out this request. Uh, from all the great thinkers and writers of their day. And they sent out this request that these authors would send back essays uh, in answer to this question. And the question that they were asking was this, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton submitted his response, and it was just four words. Dear sirs, I am. Listen, Chesterton He was able to say about himself, I know I'm the problem with the world. I mean, that's the terrifying diagnosis that James is leading us to, a recognition that the problem isn't out there. It's inside of us. But listen, that's just the beginning of the terror of applying this because we're talking about desires here. I mean... For a lot of us, it feels even unfair to ask us to be able to control our desires. How much control do we really have over our desires? Do you feel confident that you could change not just your behavior, but your desires um, that easily? Well, we're going to keep going, and hopefully we'll, we'll arrive at an answer for that. But let's keep going to see what James tells us, because second, James tells us, what we must do to experience change. So let's skip briefly ahead in our passage to verses 7 through 10. This is where James tells us what must be done to experience change. And in those verses, James fires off 10 imperatives or commands. Do this, do that, be this, be that, right? The scholar George Stulock wrote about these verses. This is what James 10 imperatives provide, A forceful call to repentance as the requisite to love and peace in the community. James is saying to change, not just your behavior, but to change our deep-seated self-centered desires, we have to repent. To have the only kind of community that will heal you and cause us to flourish, we have to repent. Now, I know that the word repent, it's loaded with some cultural and, and probably some personal baggage for you too, but I want you to do your best to hear James out um, in these verses. We don't have time to look at everything in verses 7 through 10 in great detail, but I think if you'll look, you'll realize that what James is saying here is he's saying repentance involves the whole person, the entire person. For example, he says, purify your heart's you double-minded. I mean, he's saying there, there's something of a psychological or intellectual component to repentance. But then he wrote, be wretched, mourn, and weep. See, so he's saying there's also an emotional component to repentance. But then he says, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse your hands. And here he's saying there's a volitional component to your repentance, an act of the will, right, to repentance. Now, here's why I think it's genius for James to lay this out for us like this, because most of us tend to try and locate repentance in just one of these areas or aspects of our lives, and it has led to a lot of dysfunction in our lives. Right. Some think that repentance is just it's merely psychological or mainly psychological, a really a real turning in on myself. Right. So if I can know my story with all of its baggage and I can reinterpret and understand it enough, then I will finally find freedom in my life to change. And others of us think that repentance is primarily emotional. Right. It's about how we feel. If I could just feel guilty enough this time. Some of you have said that to yourselves internally, I know. I've said it to myself. If I could just feel sad enough, wrong enough, sorry enough, if I could just feel sincere enough about my desires, then I would find the freedom to change. Others of us think that repentance is primarily volitional. It's about what we do. It's all about what I stop doing and what I start doing instead. It's exchanging one activity for a different kind of activity. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the time to describe all of the unbalanced dysfunction this very nicely creates in our lives. But my bigger question is why? Why do we do that? Why do we try and put repentance over here in the volitional category or in the emotional category or the psychological category? Here's what I think. It's because deep down we are actually trying to avoid repentance in our lives by limiting it to one aspect of our lives – repentance James was saying has to involve the whole person the entire being why is that why does repentance have to involve a turning of your entire self right i think James gives us a clue at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3 all of a sudden in this passage James started talking about prayer it seems like what are you changing subjects what's going on he says You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask to spend it on your passions. So where did that come from? What was James getting at? Now think, why would someone, why do you and I, why do we, first of all, why do we not pray sometimes? Why do you go through periods of your life where you're like, I can't remember the last time I prayed. Why is that? Isn't it because if you're honest, you really aren't all that convinced that God loves you or cares about what's going on in your life. And so you've given up on prayer and you've said, I'll just take care of it myself. I'll take matters into my own hands. And we start playing God in our lives. We don't need him anymore. But what is James talking about? That's one thing. What is James talking about when he writes, we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions." So when we do pray, we ask wrongly. He's saying this, when you go to God in prayer, you're not going to get God. You're not going to have him. You just want his stuff. You just want his gifts. Here's another way to put it. We go to God asking him that he would give us our idols, that he would give us our passions, the things we really love and worship, because it's not him. We want to call the shots, thank you very much. Then you get down to verses 11 through 12. We're almost done with this point. And there's all this talk about the law and uh, setting ourselves up as judges over our neighbors and the law. And here's what James is getting at. The real problem, the real problem that's deep inside each of us is that we have a deep-seated, self-centered desire to dethrone God. We want to be our own gods, thank you very much. We want to be our own lords and saviors. And that is, in fact, the desire that is underneath all our desires. And therefore, the only way, the only way we will ever truly experience change in life is through a repentance that involves the whole person, a real submission of your entire self, a turning of your whole being back to God. That's the only thing that will begin to heal us. I read through a bunch of George Whitfield's sermons not too long ago. And George Whitefield, uh, some of you remember, was a major preacher in the Great Awakening revival that happened. And in one of his sermons, he said this. I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or to any others, but I sin. I can do nothing without sin. And as one expresses it, my repentance wants to be repented of and my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. Our best duties are so many splendid sins, he says. Before you can speak peace into your heart, you must not only be made sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. See, some of some of us hear that and we think that's a little extreme, <laughs> right? Um, repenting of sin, okay, but repenting of my repenting, repenting of my righteousness. That's a little over the top, it seems like. Let me tell you this. Every major world religion, in some way, talks about repentance of sin, however sin is defined in those religions. But only Christianity says, to come to Jesus, you must repent of your righteousness too. You've got to turn the whole self back to God, giving up every illusion of control in your life, every illusion that you could ever be your own Lord and Savior. But let me tell you this. Because of this, no other religion can set you as free as Christianity or change you as deeply as Christianity. Right? Think about it. If I stop defining myself by my performance, my good or bad, then I become free, I become free, and the need to justify myself is gone. I'm free from the danger of criticism and compliment. On the one hand, criticism can't crush me anymore. I already know how bad I am. But on the other hand, compliments can't puff me up because I know all of that is shot through with sin in some way. But it will also change me deeply because Christianity isn't concerned so much with what I do but with who I am. Right, Christianity is after changing you from the inside out, changing your desires, the very reason we ever do anything good or bad. Okay, I'm going to save a little bit for the last point, but we need to get there now. Finally, how to do what must be done. How how is it that we embark upon this kind of repentance that's this big and this total? Because James is saying the problem underneath all our conflict is our desires. And the only way we can experience change... Is if we repent and turn our whole selves from sin and righteousness to Jesus. So how do we do that, right? The only way to, in- to it, turn the entire person to turn so significantly that even our even our desires are changed is really to find a new desire, okay. To find a desire more lovely, more beautiful, more attractive than our deep-seated, self-centered desires. In one of his most famous sermons, a guy named Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish preacher in the early 19th century, um, he talked about exposing how. Well, he talked about how exposing the danger and the emptiness, um, how exposing the foolishness of sin itself is not enough to ever lead someone to change in their lives. The title of his sermon was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he was saying that no matter how vivid, how descriptive, how articulate, how forcible or reasoned the approach, those are all his words, No matter how how much of that you garner, to simply expose the emptiness of sin, it's not enough to move anyone to actually change in their lives. Notice in James 4, verse 4, where James wrote this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Chalmers said in his sermon, The love of God and the love of the world are two affections. Not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. And that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. He's making the same point as James. He's saying the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, these are his words, is the expulsive power of Of a new one, to chase those old affections out of your heart. It's impossible for you or I to stop desiring. God made us creatures of desire. And so the only way to really change is to find a new desire so lovely, so beautiful, so attractive that it will expel your old desires. Okay, listen, there are two things that James lifts up for us in this passage, puts before our eyes in these verses as more beautiful than any of our deep-seated, self-centered desires. First, James reminds us of God's beautiful kingdom, okay? And the beauty of his kingdom is its upside-down nature. Verse 6, But he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He flips everything upside down is what James is saying. The self-assured, the arrogantly confident, those full of themselves, the the self-justifiers, they are out. They don't get in. But it's the humble, the reliant, the dependent, the lowly that are in. Verse 10, he strikes the chord of the beautiful upside-down kingdom again when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He's saying this is how upside-down it is. The way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. One of my favorite psalms captures the beauty of this upside-down kingdom. Psalm 113, very brief psalm, says that God is seated on high, and he looks down And he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. The needy and broken become princes and princesses in this kingdom, right? Isn't this the beauty that our hearts have always been longing for? I mean, it's why our favorite stories are of poor, cast-aside, humble cinder girls who one day become Cinderella's, right? Of cold death that can be softened to a sleep from which Snow White awakes when she's kissed by the true prince, right? Of beasts, this is very important to our theme this morning, of beasts, that can only change, of unlovable beasts that can only become lovable after they have been loved. Look, This upside-down kingdom, it is the beauty our hearts have always been longing for. Right? Come into that beauty, James is saying, and it will begin to expel your old affections and turn your world upside down. But second, James says in these verses, Or what he does in these verses, he lifts our eyes to a beautiful groom. Okay, almost all the translators, including the one that we used this morning, botched the translation of the beginning of verse four, and it's understandable why they do it because it it sounds strange when you read it. But James is because James is writing to men and women in this letter, but in the original Greek, he didn't he didn't write you adulterous people. He actually wrote you adulteresses which is hard to even say, Um, you see the strangeness. You know, why is it that James would refer to a group of men and women with the feminine adulteress? The reason is that James is tapping into a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And he's reminding us of that great theme, that God, in his mercy and grace, he chose to wed himself, to give himself to an unfaithful promiscuous bride in order to redeem her. So who was that unfaithful, promiscuous bride? It's us. It's the church. Right? Look, the book of Hosea, it's got to be among the strangest in the Bible. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Um, The book of Hosea begins with God telling this prophet Hosea to go and marry this woman named Gomer. Okay? Nothing particularly unusual about that, I guess we might say, other than he heard God say that um, to him. But what was really unusual was that Gomer was a prostitute. Um, And strange because God wasn't saying, go marry someone who used to be a prostitute. But strange because God was saying, marry Gomer and she will betray you. She will be unfaithful to you and she will leave you for her other lovers. And I just don't understand this. Hosea obeyed. Um, And Gomer had children, right? Only they didn't belong to Hosea, but to her other lovers. They even had names like Not My People. Um, And eventually, she left Hosea altogether and moved in, shacked up, I guess we would say (laughs) in contemporary culture, um, with one of her other lovers, You know, if I were Hosea's friend, I I thought about this. I think I would say, first of all, I told you so. This was a bad idea. Um, And then at least listen to me now. Cut her off. Be done with her. Because there's no way this ends well for you. Right? This is a recipe for disaster. But not God. Because God told Hosea, go and get her. Um, His actual words were these. Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. There's that word, adulteress. I'm telling you, it's strange. Um, you need to read it on your own. But back to the story. Hosea obeyed God, and he went to get his wife. But here's the deal. To add insult to injury, can you imagine this? I'm going to get my prostitute wife who's shacking up with another lover. That's a, it's enough insult to have to knock on that door. But when he gets there, he finds out that he's going to have to buy her back from basically her pimp, I guess. Um, and it's extremely costly. Hosea has to empty his pockets and buy her back. And he did. Now, why would God ask Hosea to do something so strange and, and really so scandalous um, Because God was using Hosea's life as a living parable. And he was saying, this is a picture of my love for my people. I love them so deeply. I love them so profoundly and so thoroughly and so completely that though they quit on me, I will never quit on them. Right? The actual words of God were these. Love her as the Lord loves loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Listen, do you see the beauty here? Because centuries later, God himself would empty his pockets. He would give up his treasured possession, and he would pay the ultimate price for his people. And that price, of course, was his own son, given for you and me. So I'm asking you, do you see the wonder and the beauty of this, of this groom Jesus and his upside-down kingdom? Because it's that vision, a desire for that beautiful groom and his kingdom that will begin to work on us and in us to expel our deep-seated, self-centered desires. Listen, it's a terrifying process prospect to trace the diagnosis of our conflict back to our own hearts, to our sin-torn and ravaged hearts. It's terrifying to give up the illusion of control in our lives, to stop avoiding repentance in our lives and turn the whole self back to God. How do you do that? Only by being captivated by something more beautiful, by a beautiful groom and his beautiful kingdom by keep being captivated by the beauty of a Savior who loves you so completely and so entirely that He died for you. And He invites you into His story, into the story of His upside-down kingdom to be changed and to live out the expulsive power of a new affection in your lives for Him and His kingdom. In just a few moments, um, we're going to sing some songs before, but we're going we're to come to this table and the, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Let me tell you this it's a very simple meal. It's just bread and wine um, that represent Christ's body and his blood. But it's a beautiful meal because it puts before us the gospel story in a visible way. And it says this Your beautiful Savior is so faithful to you that he gave his very body and his blood for you, even though you were unfaithful to him. It reminds us of his upside-down kingdom, that the way to life is through death, through Jesus' death in our place. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel We need to hear it, each and every one of us, because in all of our lives, there is conflict. There is conflict relationally because of a deep war within us, our passions and our desires to dethrone you in our lives and to live in such a way that we would be our own lords and saviors. And Father, we pray that you would lift up before us in a clear way this morning, the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom in order that it would expel those desires. Help us to turn our whole selves from both sin and righteousness to you, to cast ourselves upon your mercy and grace in order that that mercy and grace would begin to change us from the inside out. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.